and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. On today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at the digital banking space and evolutions of bank branches post-pandemic. Banks around the world have for some time reduced the amount of bank branches available for customers. And during the pandemic, all banks were forced to shut their branches and adopt a truly digital way of working with their customers. But what will happen when we're past all of this, if we ever do get past it, and are banks going to open their branches again? Is there still a need for a physical bank branch? Well, joining us today, we have some amazing guests to share their insights with us. Uh, making some FinTech Insider debuts, we have Stephen Jury, who is Director of Innovation at Santander UK. Thanks for coming on the show. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do at Santander, Stephen? Yeah, hi, um, Stephen Jury. I look after innovation at Santander in the UK. So I pick up pretty much everything and anything that's that's uh, focused on the future of our propositions, the future of the way we engage with customers, um, a lot of customer journey design, and I can pick up a lot of our engagement with um, potential fintechs that we partner with, um, in particular putting together things like proofs of concept that help us prove out potential value of partnerships between us and fintechs that can help us transform the way we engage our customers. And in the past, I've picked up things as diverse as how to educate and support children to understand the future of money, how to save, why it's important, and the basic fundamentals of money management, um, right through to some transaction monitoring using machine learning, for example. Fantastic, Stephen. Very excited to have you with us today. Um, and we are joined by Stuart Sop, who is the CEO of Current. Um, nice to see you, Stuart. Uh, can you recap to our listeners what is Current? Um, you guys are doing pretty well at the moment. Thanks, Simon. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, we're doing pretty well. The, um, uh, despite my accent, we are a US-based uh, challenger bank uh, actually here in New York, and we focus on lowering the barriers to entry uh, uh, to financial services for people who live paycheck to paycheck. So uh, the TLDR is if you don't have much money, it's fairly expensive uh, to be poor here in America, and your financial services typically cost a heck of a lot, much more so than uh, other countries, say, in Europe. Um, and during this pandemic, we have uh, banked key workers, essential workers over the last year, year and a half, um, which has meant getting more money, their money uh, in a timely fashion in their in their pockets and on their card as quickly as possible. So keeping lights on, getting them the groceries and making sure that they can get the overtime they need to keep America fully functioning. Thank you so much, Stuart. And I think your insights into the show, uh, really looking forward to. We get a balanced view of perspectives. And of course, um, you're not alone. Uh, you're both joined by Keith Brannan, who is Chief Marketing Officer at Casaza. Have I said that right, uh, Keith? Pretty close. It's Casasa. Ah, it's close. It, it, You're in the ballpark, right? Yeah, it's it's more like a it, it's more like a sauce, casasa. It sounds like a really tasty. Um, That's right. But, like, <laughs> it's also in the privacy of your own bedroom. I have some salsa with my chips, that kind of thing. Yeah, we get that all the time. It's really good stuff. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about salsa? Yeah, so uh, we actually were the originator of rewards checking accounts in 2002 under the name of uh, Bankview and rolled it out under a branded checking suite. We do checking accounts, loans, all rewards based. Um, We also manage a large marketing stack across all of our consumers for the individual institutions. We have 900 banks and credit unions right now, around 15 million total consumers that we're engaged with on their behalf to make sure they're getting great products, utilizing those products. We track a ton of trends in order to make sure we're providing the right things back to those institutions. And I think one unique thing about it that I that I noticed is that if you really look at bank and credit union trends, ours are a little bit below 
uh, your large megabank environments, right? And so there's a lot of these institutions in suburban areas, small um, communities, uh, say 100,000, and rural areas. There's a ton of this banking environment that represents a lot of consumers that are sometimes we don't think about, but the trends are very different than they are in highly dense urban areas right now. We are not seeing some of what you guys are seeing, for sure. That's going to be interesting to pull apart uh, and the different needs for different people in different parts of the countries uh, that, that we all represent as, as we look at this. Um, but we're also not alone. Uh, we're joined by Kate Moody, who's 11FS Senior Customer and Product Lead. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm still partially in mourning for your lockdown hair, Simon. Like Every time I see you and it's gone now, there was some gravity-defying hairstyles going on a couple of weeks ago so but apart from that you know, life's all good starting to make baby steps back towards normality I actually went to an art gallery yesterday which was mad but in a good way so yeah not too bad feeling normal and um, maybe maybe if, if art galleries can reopen maybe branches can too let's let's figure this out well uh, before we get into uh, what what uh, our guests think today uh, just a little summary of what we've seen over the last few months so of course we know that um, a number of banks have actually announced they're reducing the footprint of their branch networks in recent years in the US while there remain some openings overall the net effect has been reduction nearly 2,000 net closures in 2018 in the UK around a third or 3,300 of the total branch network closed between the beginning of 2015 and 2019. In Australia, around 5% of the banking outlets closed in 2019 alone. The number of full-service bank branches across the US declined by 12% between 2010 and 2019, um, dropping from 95,000 to 83,000. But we are seeing a rise in digital-only banks that operate without a single bank branch. You know, in the UK, we've got Monzo and Starling. In the US, you have Chime, Varo, and of course, Current, and, and many, many others starting to emerge. But many banks were forced into going completely digital during the pandemic outbreak. Uh, sort of everybody from your um, Bank of America to US Bank to Santander, TSB, you name your favorite bank brand. There's a lot of things that have happened in a short space of time, and digital solutions, digital onboarding has kind of become the norm. Um, Stuart, do you miss not being able to go into a branch, and what would what would bring you back into the branch? Could could we bring you to the branch side of the force? You you could physically move me, but it would have to be kicking and screaming. I think um, I'm I'm English. I, I moved around the world. I lived in Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then America. Um, working for various other banks. So I experienced like a, I was a personal consumer of finance in those countries, which typically didn't have legacy banking, architecture, infrastructure, and experience, uh, basically no branches. Um, and so coming to America, I, I, I opened up um, an HSBC account, which I did think, by the way, was the world's local bank, I think they were the, the motto at the time, um, which it clearly isn't. And, um, and I got 16 checkbooks and a bunch of other stuff. This was 2011. Uh, I'd forgotten how to write a checkbook. Uh, and so this was part of the genesis story of current here in America is that I just didn't understand, firstly, why I had to go to uh, a, a branch and why there was so much legacy architecture and infrastructure and, thing, and ways of doing things. Uh, and of course, one side is the consumer, uh, but you know, uh, a, a large part is that um, banks here in America um, are trying to, create a one-size-fits-all um, on the surface, their brand, uh, their branches. But in reality, what they're doing is focusing on the most affluent parts of, of America first. Um, and so, you know, we've got 75,000 bank branches, I think. 
pre-COVID-19 that McKinsey was saying, okay, you know, we are probably 25% over, you know, you need to close those. I think during COVID-19 through this whole pandemic this year, I'm pretty sure those banks, uh, the top 10 are going, okay, we're probably 50% over. Um, so they're going to be focused very heavily on closing real estate uh, and making the main streets of America even more deserted uh, and sort of dangerous in, in some way uh, and depopulated than they already are. Uh, and, and they're not going to do it in affluent areas um, because they need to make those places work. And so what we have is a two-speed economy. Uh, we have the haves and the have-nots. We have wealth inequality. We have people who have assets who get high-touch banking and bank branches where people are there. And then you just sort of, you know, good luck to the rest of America, 100, 130 million people. And this is where companies like Current step in. So I think it's an, a uni-economic uh, uh, model question. It's a wealth inequality question. Um, and so depending on which side you are, I, th I think it defines your answer. It's it's a complex picture and, and a tad dystopian from Stuart there. But Keith, I want to bring you in here because uh, you mentioned in your intro that that's um, sort of a picture from the metropolitan centers, but it doesn't look the same everywhere else. What are your thoughts on what Stuart just said there? Uh, I think that, I mean, I, I've spent most of my life living in metropolitan centers. So I can, I, I would say I'd be in agreement in a lot of the urban areas. It is very difficult for everyone to get to a bank branch. I mean, even even if you're affluent and you live around Chicago or New York or any city that you commute, the odds of you like having a bank branch do go down slightly because you don't want to visit them. You commute, you spend your time doing different things. But when you look at small towns, suburbs, People that are in those areas, I, the uh, number one to Stuart's point, um, I think that income disparity is not just uh, it's it's also not a peanut butter problem, right? Like urban areas and urban centers tend to have higher incomes overall, and so the people that are at the bottom of that scale have an even worse time, right? But if you go into the rural areas, because of the job economy and what's available in some of those areas, their income, their top end producers, their top end income earners are naturally going to be lower than major urban areas, right? And that's kind of across the United States. So the, you do have it, you, you of course have the super rich that are going to live in those areas. But as a general rule, um, you don't have uh, quite the uh, super high incomes on the mass scale and percentage wise in a lot of the, the rural and smaller town areas that you might and big urban areas where uh, companies that can pay a lot have moved. Um, and so definitely right in the urban areas and in some of the rural areas, I would say um, it's, it's an interesting difference. Um, if you actually look at the demographic age ranges uh, outside of an urban area, you at the credit union and banking business have a 50 plus year old consumer base that consumes 35 to 40 percent of your accounts. Now, if you just think about that for a second. That group has been traditionally very difficult to change a habit that has been formed over their life of how they do business. And the older they get, the different, the, the, the harder it is to change that. And so those people will naturally continue to want to interact with a human. Now, if that is in a branch, great. Um, they will continue to come to a branch. They, I think, also still will want more and more technological enablement. So we see all of our institutions wanting to invest in that technological enablement. But we also see all of our institutions opening up quite rapidly to allow for people to come into their branches because it is a real service impact and it is a real acquisition impact. I, we run a ton of marketing for all these institutions. I can compare a bank or a credit union that has 10 branches or 20 branches. It's the exact same market, put them side by side. 
put another one that has, compare one that has 10 branches to one that has three. Run the exact same amount of media to the exact same targets. The one with 10 wins every time, right? Having branches in some of these areas is actually a driver of your acquisition performance. Like it or not, people drive by, they still believe that your presence means their money's there. Doesn't. Just means they can get their hands on someone and walk in if they really have a problem. And so despite the fact that I think there is an overinvestment in some branch areas in very competitive markets, in others, it's a service level need that will continue to be there. But I do think the engagement model will change. It's a real mixed picture. Um, and yeah. I think you alluded to um, sort of the demographics as much as the income base. I mean, Kate, um, do you, are there different sort of types of characters and people that want different things as well as not just where they live, how much they make and, and age? Yeah, I think so. I think obviously the, the the main prevailing stereotype is that bank branches are just for old people, right? I think that's kind of the, the common narrative. I think actually if you look at a lot of the studies out there, it's not quite as straightforward. You know, the FCA did a great study in the UK last year looking at sort of access to cash, which obviously is kind of one of the key services associated with bank branch usages. And actually, it's really much more about poverty uh, and sort of you know, economic uh, outlook versus versus age. So, yeah, I think really there's a, a much more nuanced picture around who actually best benefits from, from bank branches that maybe we don't fully understand yet or isn't really as widely understood as it should be. Mm, interesting. And soon, I want to sort of ask you, when lockdown came in, we saw a lot of banks had to get up and running fully digital pretty quickly. What have, what have you seen? What are your observations sort of post-pandemic? Have we seen, is it an acceleration of an existing trend or do you think there's a lasting lasting change here for how um, sort of the, the larger existing banks are operating in your experience, Stephen? I think it's been a material shift in the behavior of customers, um, not just driven by I guess, a, a rise in the access and use of digital. So downloading a mobile app, increased usage of the online bank. But the more difficult it's been for consumers to access anything on the high street, the more it's pushed people to use more things that are digital. And we know from the last what, 10, 15 years of the adoption of any new service, from uh, in particular from banking, when you tend to find consumers use one or two things and grow a little bit in confidence, then they start to shift their behavior more towards an easier and more convenient solution. So uh, sometimes the necessity drives the need to overcome a fear to engage. Um, and we know certainly for larger groups that have been, perhaps been a bit slower to come to digital services, um, the fact that the lockdown has, has prevented or reduced the, the breadth of access, but it's opening hours, access to people, like potentially longer waiting times on, on the phone, um, the ability to engage via chat, um, and the chat could be with somebody that's based in a branch. So what you've seen is a shift in, in behavior, beginning to think about how do you distribute a workforce and what the purpose of a branch is, um, not just look at it through the lens of a, a logo that's on a high street and a, and a counter through which you do some transactions. And this is where you start to see some really interesting things play out, I think, over the next few, few years is how, how do you think about the purpose of the presence in that location? How does it help with ensuring your brand has a profile, how during times that are quieter can people in a branch location provide other levels of support? And we know it's quieter. We know the footfall has dropped. We know certainly across the whole industry that a lot of the focus has been on basic transactions rather than, than the purchase of products because the purchase of products has shifted to digital and shifted to digital as capability and digital has improved. I can 
identify myself better. I can complete a process. It's easier to populate the information. I can complete a sales process in an app. Um, this changes the, the the lens through which you look at the branch location. So I, I think to, to answer your question, there has been a shift. Um, how long that will play out and what will happen more broadly over time, I think will depend not just on what's available in the branch, but also um, how local high streets recover, I guess, in potentially more rural areas. And actually what happens in the likes of big cities like London, like Manchester, like Birmingham, which are incredibly quiet right now. It's interesting to link it to those broader trends that we're seeing in society and the use for those. But how do you think that impacts? And I'm just going to stick with you, Stephen, on the, the bank strategy itself. So if I have a large branch footprint, I am across many metropolitan urban areas, but I also have uh, wider branches. You sort of alluded to shifting their purpose a little bit. But there's a few people I've spoken to who said, oh, well, we've delivered our 2020 and 2021 digital roadmap in the last sort of four months. Well, does, is that it now? What, what's next? How do you build and maintain or grow from there in terms of um, what comes next for that customer? Well, listen, I think if you, you reflect on what the roadmap may have been pre-COVID, I mean, how many more people may download and start using an app? Uh, how many more people will make a payment, will buy a product? Um, if you look at those metrics, it's kind of almost no wonder that kind of a decade of almost digital transformation happened in as many weeks effectively um when you think about what may change then about a branch and the branch's involvement as part of a wider experience delivery for a customer alongside all the other digital channels this is when you get into rethinking how the workforce uh, that are distributed in the branches may provide other levels of support and if i play that one interesting example so our our my colleagues in spain uh who have uh, a capability in the mobile app that enables a customer um, to connect with somebody local through the app, um, have a named banker, can connect with a video conference call, can talk about products or services, can resolve issues. Now, you start to bring that to life and think about how that might change the nature of the strategy to engage people locally who work out of branches with people that are based locally, but using all the security and all the capabilities that exist um, through digital and through uh, through an app. Um, and you start to rethink how that experience could look and feel. So I, I, you can never get into a space where you predict what the world will look like in 12, 18 months, because obviously nobody could have taken a call on what the last three or four months would have looked like. But uh, I think it, it's certainly encouraging people to look at how all segments of society get the support that they need, whether it's those that have a reliance upon cash and reliance upon ATMs that need financial support. Um, clearly, we're going to go into a period where there could be a number of uh, customer groups that become more vulnerable, experience distress, which is where I guess that human intervention can make an enormous difference. Um, and others that choose now because they work in a different location, I'm based at home rather than in a, in a, a city location where it's easier for me to reach a branch, you may see a total shift in the way they engage with you. I want to come in, Stuart, just briefly. In the US, it's very cash and check heavy sort of nation historically, um, that which has kind of relied on branches. What shifts are you seeing in the pandemic that, that allow people to deal with that sort of more manual, more paper-based stuff that, that the digital experiences are unlocking? Yeah, I mean, you, we, we hear very often um, for, through the mainstream press, I guess, that, you know, cash is now dirty and, and, and like the form factor to, you know, tap and pay is now here. I think Americans in general um, have lagged the rest of the world, Europe especially, 
in adopting uh, new standards uh, and sort of contactless forms of payments. Typically, what I've seen on, uh, on my travels has been that most payment changes have been seeded and started by local government. And America has a, a fairly complicated and nested uh, federal system that doesn't allow for really unification of, like, say, an MTA transport system here in New York and the BART system in San Francisco. They just they just don't work together, and then there's no no communication, and that's that's a feature, not a bug. Um, and we'll see how, how that goes. So there's unique opportunities. It's always going to be a laggard here in terms of infrastructure changes, uh, just because of that of that that nature. But to me, what that does is provide opportunity. Uh, as, as as a capitalist, I believe, um, you know, we have uh, um, ha- have have sort of steered the ship a little badly, uh, at least here in the U.S. since 2008. That has created more and more wealth inequality and divide. And I think if we got back to having some healthy creative destruction um, and, and companies coming through to solve some of these problems, for example, you've seen some of this happen over the last 10 years uh, where you have like a unified regulatory body in Europe um, and you have real-time gross settlement. Uh, 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 in at least in the US, uh, UK and, and, and Europe. Here we have uh, Venmo, uh, we have Zelle, we have Square Cash. Um, and then you look at open banking uh, APIs that was meant to go at least live <laughs> last year in the UK. Um, here we have Plaid uh, that was bought by Visa. And so anytime you see some regulatory top-down event in Europe, typically that, that is opportunity for private companies to f- you know, fill the void and provide that service. And that it has been fairly effective at that. Um, in terms of like consumer behavior and has this um, moved things along, I, I think within reason, um, you know, there's such a large underserved um, check cashing prepaid market here. It's truly astounding how big it is. Um, the, the, this clearly the, the, the pandemic has aided us. We have uh, exceptional growth over, over the last uh, six months. Um, and also just getting those stim checks to people as quickly as possible and all the rest of it. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about banking and, and if you're a traditional banker or a fintech challenger, trust, you, you'll see that word thrown around so, so often. It's, it's crazy. Um, trust is a delivery, is a prom, is a promise that was delivered. And so what happened in the pandemic is that we were open 24 seven. We are open every day, Christmas day, all the rest of it. You can get hold of RCS at any, any, any point, um, day or night. And on any day, there are no bank holidays for us, right? And I think that's important. What the hell is a bank holiday? Like everyone else is working. (laughs) I mean, I mean, and most bank branches are open nine to five. Like, yeah, sure. Good luck going to one of those when you're working or you're, you know, working for Uber at like, you know, doing the nights at 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning and you have a problem with the payment, right? So, I mean, what we're seeing here is I think in the banking industry that was, Fairly, um, fairly obvious in the retail industry. We've just seen a bunch of bankruptcies here, you know, Macy's, et cetera, go down. And they were just sort of zombied uh, business models. And I, I, we can make the argument that, yeah, sure, people want to shop there, but the unit economics of the floor space and how many they have and who the customer is has fundamentally changed in the last 50 years. And either you can go with the current or you can go against it, pun intended. Um, so the, um, and, and I think for banks, they're just going to have to like spin pretty quick, um, on this and just own up. They're on the wrong side of, 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 of development. And also for us, we focus on a younger demographic average age is 27 for that very reason. 
you've just mentioned all the all the users just don't want to change. We did see some because they had to, right? 55-year-olds, 60-year-olds, they had to, and we were there. Um, but we don't focus our marketing on that for that exact reason, right? As soon as like BOA or Wells Fargo is open, they're going to go back. And I know that, and that's just fine. Um, but there's a whole younger generation, like we're in marketing um, vectors like TikTok and uh, YouTube influencers. Like anyone at 35 and over is not, is not yeah, doing anything in those there. channels, or they shouldn't be anyway. <laughs> Let's hope. We, I, just as a, on the consumer side to address some of the direction that we've talked about how the banks might move. I think how the consumers are moving is, is, is really interesting. Like, um, I was managing a really large group during the last financial meltdown at a financial company. And it's it's interesting that the acute nature of what happened last time and what happened this time drove an immediate response in consumers in both cases. But they responded very quickly, right? They they, they responded very quickly. Like the, the messaging that worked became irrelevant after they figured out that they had not lost everything, right? If they, mm-hmm. they were one of those people. And so we've been tracking for some time. And so we've actually been with Harris. Uh, we do a Harris poll about every week or so now um, to find out how Americans just broadly were feeling. And uh, a few weeks ago, normally, so we do this on a regular basis to find out about checking trends and loan trends. But one in five Americans currently saying they're planning to open a new checking or savings account, right? And 51% of the account opening that we see across all of our institutions Right. We're, sorry, there's an increase of 51 percent in the number they're being opened online. But if you look at what consumers are doing broadly and what they're searching for, one of the we, 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 we watch a number of uh, things and have for years. One of them is bank or credit union near me, hmm. which is a really interesting term. Right. <clears throat> I want to know if there's one near me. It's at an all time high for the, or at least for the last 12 months in our measurement period. It's higher now than it's ever been. Also, online account opening made a big spike in uh, early April and then kind of in early June, and it's back down to normal levels now. So there's a fair amount of consumer activity that says, I plan to open an account. I'm still interested in where, I'm still interested in knowing how I'm gonna be serviced, right? And so I think that to Stephen's point before, it's an engagement decision. It may not even be a full branch decision. That's it's having 900 uh, uh, clients. I can tell you for sure that each one of them has a slightly different strategy. So if you're in one area, retail may only be intended to help shore up deposits that they're going to lend out to their commercial business, which means they're really a commercial bank, right? They're just looking for a cheap fund funding source, which is perfectly great. And so in their case, right, they're never closing down the branches they have because they're literally there to serve local businesses who are borrowing from them, who are used to the relationships they have because those businesses are often quite uh, customized in their lending and financing needs. And so that's a very different thing than a Chase who just wants to acquire a ton of retail everywhere. That's it's not that either one's bad. It's just a different thing that will impact the need for branches and physical locations. Different strategies playing out. Kate, what are your reflections on the comments so far? Yeah, I think it's um I think it's super interesting. You know, Stuart used the word opportunity and I think Stephen talked about it, you know, similarly. Um and I agree, like actually, you know, you asked at the beginning, have I been to a bank branch in the last twelve months? And the answer is no. But have I wanted to go to a bank branch for something? Yes. You know, I wanted to you know, just one example, you know, my card stopped working. I wanted to be able to go and click and collect my new card from my local bank branch, which was sort of the assumption I'd carried over from, you know, my 
life spent on Amazon. Um, and I wasn't able to do that. So I think there's a really interesting opportunity to use this as a moment to kind of shift the narrative away from bank branches are just closing because it's a, a cost effective measure to bank branches are, are closing. But that means that we have more of a focus on rethinking how they interact with customers and the types of services that customers can access when they do go into a physical location, whether that's a branch or whether that's a partner network or also a partner site. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a mixture of opportunities and challenges, but definitely I think it's I'm glad that COVID is actually encouraging us to think more about the proper purpose of branches rather than it just being sort of like a ye olde legacy hangover from the old banking system of old. Yeah, it was kind of, we have a branch because we sort of have to have one, but that's been questioned now and it's not digital versus branches. There's a real nuanced conversation starting to happen, or at least we hope there might be. Listen, I'm just going to take a quick pause here and we'll be back very, very shortly. Do you love InsureTech? Do you love insurance? Yeah, so do we. Um, so InsureTech Insider is a bi-weekly podcast from 11FS where hosts Sarah Kachansky and Deloitte's Nigel Walsh dig into the latest news and hot topics from the global InsureTech scene. Together with guests from the industry's most interesting players, a new episode goes live every other Wednesday. Simply visit ii.11fs.com or find it in your favorite podcast client. That's InsureTech Insider. Do check it out. Alrighty, back to the show. Uh, Stuart, you're about to jump in there. Yeah, just to jump in on... Uh on uh, Kate's comment there about, you know, her example, her personal example of needing a card. And I think that's really important. Um, for example, at current, you lose your card, you can't find it. You can pause it in the app and then you can have a virtual card displayed on your phone and you can keep going through those uh, instantly. Um, and so then you could continue shopping in a secure and safe way um, whilst you've reordered your card and we track when that card comes to you. And you can also get express delivery and things like that. Absolutely no reason at all to go into an, uh, a branch for that. And I think that's I think that's where we're sort of ending up, right? Like when I look at why you need to go into a branch, all of those reasons can be sold. There is no hardware other than the card, right? And you think about like the Apple store idea and a lot of big banks go, hey, I just want it to look like a genius bar. What are you going to demonstrate? What are you going to show? Um, the only thing uh, you really need branches for, in my opinion, is for heavy, complex transactions like mortgages, things that take life decisions, that take a lot, you know, big cycles and a lot of money. And people do need handholding on those. They need to understand the implications in their life and all that stuff. And, I, and I, you know, maybe even mortgages. I know we have a bunch of, of mortgage uh, online competitors coming through here, at least in New York. Um, uh, they, they get done as well. But my view is, is that you know, we've sort of strayed away, at least in the U.S., from an advisory role. Uh, many of many branch um, employees are low-paid workers. Even on current, we see a bunch of Wells Fargo, Bank of America employees who are branch employees at current banking with current, and they get a free uh, account from those big branches, and they're just not looked after. They're not the focus. They're still part of this demographic that's left and ostracized by the banking network. That's super interesting. I want to pick up um, on that human point because I think that competitive advantage of a human has kind of faded away as the branch has been a cost to be managed rather than an opportunity to to service somebody. And Kate, the psychology around uh, when I'm making a big transaction, it doesn't matter if the computer says it's okay. There's a certain number for everybody where they want a person to tell them that. And and, and can you pull that apart? A little bit yeah sure i mean you know we spend a lot of time speaking directly to customers and we're designing new propositions you know i was speaking to some customers for a project a couple of weeks ago and there was you know one lady i was chatting to who went into her branch every year to sit down and just have someone like talk through her finances with her and at the moment i'm you know, to, to stuart's point you know that doesn't have to happen 
person to person in a branch. But for her, like there was a huge emotional value to that. There was a, a human relationship that was, you know, we talked about trust earlier. Um, I think there are lots of sort of, obviously the mortgage use cases is, is a clear one, makes a load of sense. But I think there are also lots of other elements where the human connection is really important too that might be smaller. You know, I live in, in West London. I live next to, you know, fairly um, market-based area. Uh, the queue outside my local bank is like down the street every day at the moment and it's absolutely chucking it down rain today the queue is still there so there are still lots and lots of emotional needs and personal needs that that branches are solving for that the digital space could catch up with but it hasn't got there yet how do, how do we go about doing that, Keith? How do we start to solve for some of those? And should we be trying to, you know, can can digital be human too? Like, what, how do you bring that, all the benefits of real-time, intelligent, contextual services that, that digital gives you, but not lose the human element? Is is that something that we should even aspire to? I mean, personally, yeah. I, I think that the engagement model that we've talked about that allows a branch to be present because if you remember the the banking system in the U.S. and around the world it is it is what you would call a trust based system. Though that Stewart said, yeah, the trust gets overused, but the the very basis of trust and the reason the banks were there was to confirm that someone giving you money actually had the money to give you, right? And and is is very difficult to displace the intermediary concept. At the same time, that intermediary has to do other things for you, um, and those other things that get into a more complicated financial life or service oriented is where that that need for human engagement comes in. And I would I would also say that it, it I'm not totally convinced that the banks really want to. And I mean, they do own the branches. They want them to be efficient, right? I mean, like if we were if they were all manufacturing companies, they would never have a branch, right? Because it's nowhere near Six Sigma. That's the least productive manufacturing floor on the planet. But when it comes to engaging consumers, if you look at the difference between a small bank and a large bank in the United States, they are they are one of the few businesses in the world that are truly run by a balance sheet. Most of them are run by income statements, right? Banks are run by balance sheets. And when you look at the balance sheet of a large institution, in the neighborhood of 40% of their net income comes from non-interest income. Fees, and things associated with non-checking products or interchange, which means that in order for them to get more of that, you have to have a relationship beyond setting up an account or you have to charge fees on every account for you to have it monthly. And consumers, I would say that's going in the other direction. Consumers don't tend to like that if they're not getting something extra for it. And so in order for them to maintain the non-interest income, which protects their businesses in a downturn like this, like if you look at Japan and some of the other economies, when they've been in a low interest environment for a really long time, the impact on their net interest margin is incredible over a long period of time because their expenses don't track as fast as their income does. If you look at small banks and credit unions, it's even more outsized. Only about 15% of their net comes from non-interest income, which means in order for them to get any of that and compete with large institutions, they have to continue to have a way to give more fee-based services to the consumer. And until that digital experience allows them to reliably increase that income, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of these banks to say, I'm going to jettison all these branches where people walk in and give me fees. And I'm going to trust that in a low interest rate environment, I'm going to be able to thrive. And by the way, what am I going to do with all these darn deposits that I've got suddenly? I mean, they've, yeah. got, them, they've got tons of them. They, need, they don't need deposits right now. And they, don't, they need swipes on those deposits and they need fees on the other services you buy. And those are often still sold in a cross-sold 
post-marketing environment. It's just difficult for them to do it online. So it is a balance sheet driven decision for them. It's a really interesting set of strategic questions that they're facing when there's too many deposits and there's not enough uh, income coming at them uh, that, that kind of faces that. Um, but I like this point about branches being this sort of reason why the fees are there because you're getting all this added value from the from the human. Um, Stephen, is there a way to start to surface that value from the human in you know with the benefit? You talked earlier about chat. Are there other ways you can start to to blend those things together? And and what have you seen that's that's along those lines? Hold on a second, just to be clear. I'm not saying the reason that the branches exist is because of the value you get out of having one. I'm saying the reason that banks will maintain them is because currently that's the distribution of the fees for other non-checking account services where someone will sign up easily online. I'm saying that their decision to remove is not a service-based thing. It's that that's their channel. It makes it much more difficult to get all of the ancillary fees from commercial through mortgage, through debt consolidation, through all the things they do. So it's more of a cross-sell point. That are different. Yeah. And they need them to do that service and cross-sell. And by the way, I'm not saying that everyone should keep their branches open. I, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we should go fast, fast, fast toward more digital. I just want to make sure we're balancing that with the fact that consumers haven't given up on it. And there is still a need to go in for a lot of these things that are very important to the bank's. And I think, Keith, to your, to your point around uh, kind of uh, consumers have not given up on it, I think is a reflection of how and why people come into a branch at the moment. So I think it's important to realise that probably about a 90% of all engagement in a branch is to perform basic transactions, coming in to pay money in, take money out, um, not, not necessarily buy complex products, sit down for a, uh, an interview, share information, make a decision in a local branch. I mean, that, there's a lot less of that happening. And a lot less of that happens because consumers' lives are incredibly busy and it's way more convenient to sit down with the information you've got at home and, and cover a lot of that process unless you have a problem with it um, just from the comfort of your own home. So, But it, I think what, what, Simon, you're trying to grasp at is how do you blend um, that human touch and that human experience with the presence on a high street, um, whether that's in a, a large city area or, or somewhere more rural? Um, and I think that's part of the thinking that's matured quite a lot in the last four or five months, because as banks are faced into um, some quite big challenges around, I guess, a workforce that is is and was experiencing the same challenges that everyone else was experiencing with, with colleagues becoming unwell, um, not being able to uh, social distancing, meaning that actually the traditional way of operating a branch, operating a contact centre, um, made it more challenging to get people in and out of buildings. Now, when that begins to constrain your ability to deliver that human touch, whether that's through a contact center or on a local high street, you start to think about how you connect your workforce with your customer base in in entirely new ways. And that forces that acceleration, Um, not just in consumers rethinking the way they engage with you uh, as a bank to perform transactions, to talk about complex products. And and certainly we've seen... um, off the back of things like the stamp duty changes uh, during this period, people have been looking actively to buy property. Um, so lots of conversations about big purchases people are making are still happening and people are still getting support and that's not necessarily happening in a local branch. Um, but as you start to think about how you deliver that experience, you then need to help people who've never engaged with this technology, both consumers and colleagues, to learn how to make the best out of it. So if somebody's never been a live agent supporting a customer off the back of a chat, to be sat in a branch location, connected with a new piece of software, learning a new skill, um, and that's happening 
on my local high street with somebody who's a few miles down the road, but it's happening digitally. I guess the thing we're going to start to learn is, is the power of connecting uh, those customers with somebody who's local, knowing that they're local, but digital, powerful. Is it more mm. powerful than something that happens centrally? And, and that is something I don't believe we know yet. Um, and that's something we have to learn. Good stuff. Um, Kate, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think it's... Um... I think it's really interesting that kind of combination of the the local and the digital is is, is really fascinating. Um, yeah, I think the ability to to have that contextual information. I think we talk about that a lot uh, at FS. You know, we talk about that kind of ye oldy world where um, you, know, you went into a bank branch and the bank manager was able to know your life and know the circumstances you were in and make a decision on that basis. Um, you know, we've moved away from that. And now we actually have the opportunity to to try and, uh, to, to Stephen's point, to try and build a, a digital model which connects people back into local institutions. It was really interesting to see uh, you know, Jez, uh, the CEO at Barclays, talking about how banks might start to repurpose uh, their office buildings to, to move staff out of their central London offices and out into local environments where they could actually understand their customers more directly. So, yeah, and no, I agree. I think that that balance between the, the local and the digital is going to be a really interesting space to watch. The great relocalizing. Um, there's there's something interesting there, um, Stuart. I, I guess I want to pick your brains as to uh, you know where where we sort of head next with this stuff. The, the thing, are the limitations of digital. We've seen historically, as Kate was saying, I think the um, the branch manager knew the individual on a human level and could understand two people of the same credit score. One's likely to pay them back and one's not. And actually in the 80s and 90s when we digitized the paper process maybe we lost a little bit of what was good about being human and i look at what plaid are doing and and sofi and and you know that use plaid and upstart and all of these sorts of businesses they're able to use data to try and drive a more personalized view as to who this person is but do you need the human touch still in that how do you think about how you can get the best of both in these things yeah, um, obviously we don't own any branches here at Current, but uh, if I was at a, a large bank, I mean, I've said this for a couple of years, so it's pre, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, I'd be you know, re- retooling all my branches, not to coffee shops, but to daycare or high-impact tutoring um, for like distributed schools. It provide value to people who need to come to the high street if there is a high street or main street left for a couple of hours where you know someone can drop their kids off or they can they can get something that's worthwhile to me you know that's a free free piece of advice for anyone listening like you know that's what would get me and a bunch of other people to actually engage and think of highly of the brand to be quite frank everyone is working double everyone's at home with their kids think about it like i don't need another coffee shop but i do need daycare um so um <laughs> And I'm, I'm sure every parent out there would would be nodding. Um, so, uh, in terms of the future, look, I, I just feel like you know, if you're running a big bank, you've got elderly, you got you've got a, a brand that's one size fits all, and you've got lots and lots of different needs from a lot of different customers. And I think whilst that's great in in in, in a world pre digital, I don't think because you 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 know you did TV and you had a branch network, whoever came in came in, right? Um, we can be much more focused and specific about solving real problems for people. And, and like at current, we focus on a single demographic that is very broad-based, very horizontal as opposed to a vertical bank uh, structure. And so the future to me is really turning the page 90 degrees and saying, I'm not trying to get everyone. I'm just trying to get these people and I'm going to make it damn good. Uh, and, and it's going to be very hard for other people to compete. In terms of um, 
in terms of like losing that human touch, I don't know if you've been shopping on Instagram or, or on uh, Facebook or Google, but uh, you know, the data aspect trumps all of the human or lack of human interaction. The fact that I can have something surface to me that is applicable, that is good, that is in time, uh, uh, I think, and is just much more efficient and a lot more value is going back to the user. And I think, you know, we have data privacy concerns and all this other stuff going for the rest of this year and into early next year. Financial data is untouched and siloed. And I do believe the future will encompass more business models that take advantage and give that, uh, when I say take advantage, give that value back to the consumer. Yeah, I think I'd be interested just picking up on one of the points that Stuart makes there because I think it, it, it talks about, uh, we're talking very much about how different segments engage with with their money. Um, and I, I think Keith's picked up on this, so kind of some some groups of society, and not necessarily, it does maybe edge towards a, an older or an aging population, um, but it also edges towards those that are perhaps not so digitally mature or digitally confident, do still rely on a branch. Um, they they come in for um, support. They use the ATMs to support them with budgeting. So they'll take money out and use the money they've taken out to help them budget week to week, get paycheck to paycheck. And they'll they'll solve for the problem of budgeting in the same way a user may have uh, may become a uh, have a relationship with an established bank and then also a relationship with Monzo. And they'll move money in budget through Monzo and and hold a relationship with a with a key bank and they achieve the same outcome digitally that uh, other customer segments achieve physically with cash. Um, so I think one of the really important things to think about here as well is what that responsibility looks like for the industry. And I think this is where you start to get in some very crunchy um, discussions. Um, and I know, Simon, at the top of the call, you picked out, I guess, the rise of Monzo and Starling, the growth of the, uh, I guess, uh, the digital customer base, a pure digital customer base. Actually, what is the responsibility of the industry to help all groups of society to access money? And does that just fall to those that happen to have had branches that were established many years ago, which people are now going into less and less often because there is now more competition and more players distributing customers? Should that fall to just that group or should it fall to all of those who are now operating in financial services, delivering support and taking mm. responsibility to ensure um, every part of society can access banking. So it's almost implying then that you should almost go the other way. Instead of uh, more smaller niche banks, all banks should serve everyone or at least share the responsibility of being able to help everybody. And, and I think that's an interesting question. Is it, um, is it, I know things have been explored around shared branch locations for groups that aren't digital or not comfortable for dig operating digital are, or are more vulnerable. Um, but I guess as we look at it as an industry, we have a responsibility. When we look at the way the industry is shifting, it's inevitably shifting to be more digital. And I think this is where a, a quite a mature conversation needs to be had about how do we get to the right outcome for all parts of society collectively, accepting the fact that there are very different business models that are evolving for those players that are coming and competing. Um, because I, I, I think wanna, the competition I'll... breeds the innovation, but the innovation and the outcome shouldn't be at the expense of certain groups of society. And, and I want to pick up on Stuart's point, though, because I think he he has sort of looked to a very sort of cash, arguably excluded segment. Yes, younger, um, but a, but an arguably excluded seg segment historically. But I think part of the reason banks like Current exist and Monzo and Starling and others is the cost of creating the underlying financial infrastructure is lower than ever before because of 
bank as a service platforms because of like the underlying infrastructure? And is there something about the old bank business model, Keith, that was uh, it was just so expensive to to run a lot of this stuff for quite some time? You kind of you're lugging all of that cost with you, and you kind of have this responsibility, and you have a book that serves everybody. They just didn't have the opportunity to to be niche. They couldn't make a business case being niche. And do you think then we will see people pick off bits of the market and then move away from that um, sort of uh, universality that that sort of had been historically the target or at least the accepted norm? Yeah, I think that when you look at uh, what Stuart works on and then what a typical bank is doing, like one of my biggest concerns for all banking environments is that I would call it a for lack of a better term, because I don't know if this is the right term or not, but if you were a banker, you might call it a turndown product. I think it's travesty in many cases that someone can ask for a checking account who just wants a place to reliably have trust in the in the financial system and can't get one. There should always be a place for that person. If you say you're serving a local community, there should always be a place for that person to fall into the right segmented product that will serve their needs. It doesn't have to be the same for everyone. And that's part of what Stephen was saying. We, we want to make sure that we've got, as a bank provider, whether it's local or online, that you do have a responsibility to meet the needs of many of the people who actually just simply need that service. And I, I, I personally think that's the way that everyone should be moving. I think it's going to get more and more tricky in some cases for a lot of banks right now, you know, I mean, like if you're flush with, if you're liquid and they are all liquid right now, lots of deposits, what they're looking for is accounts. And the only reason you want accounts instead of deposits is if those accounts can do other things with you. It's it's sort of, it's really a tough situation for those banks that haven't made the investment because they're looking at it saying, how do I make a digital investment into something and traditionally, Simon, if you look at the difficulty in a, again, dealing with a lot of integrations, integrating with a core is no easy thing. We support almost 80 of them now, right? So we integrate directly with almost 80 cores. And I can tell you for sure, it is the toughest thing for these midsize and under institutions to do, which is to, when they make a bet on a new product or service or digital transformation, that bet has to work. Because they, they don't have the capacity like a large institution do four things at once and maybe one of the four makes it. When they make a bet, it, they're really making an 18-month bet that this is the thing the resources are going into and that's going to work. And if it doesn't, then it's a big risk for them. And so that's why they pick to do things they know and understand because they believe they can be successful there. And I think for us on the provider side, we've got to make it easier and easier for them to provide the things that are needed and the changes in a way that's simple, scalable, and that they can be successful, right? If they don't see a path to, yes, I'm going to be successful at this, man, it's, it's tough. It's very difficult for <clears throat> that business owner to make that decision. And that's, that's, that's where they're at. It's, it's, not a, it's not that they don't want to. Like I said, we have a lot of institutions we work with. They're good people, man. They don't, like, they don't want to stop providing great service. They just want to make sure that they're going to be able to keep providing the other services they have too. Yeah, you don't like messing with core transformation is not a fun place to be. And and actually, um, Stuart, it's often cheaper and easier to start again with some of these things. I mean, we've we've actually seen this this happen time and time again. Yeah. So um, we uh, at current we have something called Current Core. We built our own core twenty fifteen onwards was not an easy decision to make given the growth of competitors who did not focus on that. Um, that 
cost efficiency and technology platform improvement and and, and product uh, defensibility uh, is starting to shine through now. Um, so I totally understand the core issues that um, you know Keith, uh, uh, Keith is talking about. Um, but realistically, not everyone can do it. You need really good programmers from all parts of those tech worlds and you need to start again. And it, you know, we're five years later, right? So good luck for everyone else. There's an emerging breed now, isn't there? There's, there's Mambu and Thought Machine and obviously a little old 11FS Foundry as well. So there's the beginnings of newer platforms. But again, there's still a level of sophistication, which for, for a community bank uh, is, is still possibly a little bit beyond, uh, beyond the, what they can afford. Or even as I think Keith is putting out, uh, the, just the sense of risk around it and the sense of like what I lose if I go down that path. Path is still massive. Um, we are pushed for time, so I'm going to ask everybody to just kind of give us their their last word on this. I'm going to start with Kate. What, what are your reflections on this this conversation? Um, I think it's obviously there's a huge number of other factors from from the financial space that feed into like the role of the role of branches. Right, we've talked about branches and the connection to to marketing and the value for the brands. We've talked about the role of branches for customers. We've talked about the role of branches in the connection to like the wider ecosystem of, of, of high streets and sort of cities. And um, I think it's it's a really uh, important decision that these financial institutions are going to have to make over the next few months. You know, we're expecting to see. Uh, second quarter results come out this week you know there's going to be lots of pressure on banks to just slip into that narrative of you know we've got to find efficiencies we've got to save costs and where do we go to first we go to the branches but I think what we've seen here is that actually there's a really amazing opportunity to use this as a moment to rethink fundamentally how we can create value for customers through these fiscal assets and um, that's really exciting. It is exciting times. Um, Stephen, what are your um, sort of final thoughts from reflections from this conversation? I think I'd echo um, the comments Kate has made. I think rethinking the way, um, like very experienced, very loyal, very knowledgeable um, branch staff can can provide a much broader support to a customer base um, and therefore, I guess, improve the economics of a local branch um, has to be factored into the way uh, we think about our strategy and the industry looks at this much more broadly. Um, but I think w- what remains to be seen now is is we're just coming out the, the back of the COVID impacts. We're seeing consumer f- behaviour shift. Um, we're seeing a m- much greater comfort with digital and how you create a proposition that has that human touch and, and a kind of indistinguishable blend between the digital and the human, both local and central. Um, I think is is just a must, and it's something that that we will have to work through over the the coming sort of six, twelve, twenty four months. The journey is not done, it seems. Oh, Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you for for contributing to it. Um, Stuart, how about yourself? What are your reflections from today? Is uh, is it the end for branches, um, or do they all need to become daycare centres? <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be great if you wanted more engagement. I think that's what you'd do. I think the the big banks are all going to. Uh, cut a bunch in rural and non-performing areas. Of course, there's regulation that will stop them doing that, and 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 that's a good thing because they've relied on regulation and been an extension of of the government by uh, 2008 and the most recent pandemic. Right, basically too big to fail. So so it, there is a cost to that, and they should run, bear that. Um, I feel like the branch networks for the big banks after they've cut those will then move quickly towards business banking. It's the most sense. It's the only place you'd want to do. Uh, you have to take in cash daily, things like that. And so I think there's going to be a rush. And of course, that vector is being taken down 
by 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 fintech as well. So that'll be a race to sort of retool uh, those. Um, and of course, then there's niche banking, agricultural banking, or, or or just like these vectors where you just can't do it digitally. You need handholding. You have relationships that are more meaningful, and the, the money's bigger. Um, and and I think there's always like just as we saw with Amazon with books, right? Bookstores were meaningfully impacted. They did go away, but of course there are bookstores around and you can buy a book and there was always people who want to read a book in real life and, 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 and they get very romantic about it and they want to do that. But typically those bookstores are in fairly affluent areas, at least mm. in America. Interesting metaphor. Keith, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I think that just across everyone, both consumer and the banking environment, it, it will be more of an engagement model that crosses what a traditional bank might have been online for in the past. And, and I think that's very good for consumers. Um, I think it's great for them to have multiple ways to engage a group and provide a broader list of services. That's it. When you look at personalization for Keith Brannan as a consumer and then Keith Brannan as a household, those things uh, at a local level um, can be accommodated for, they are going to be more and more digital. I mean, th- that's just that's just the way it should go. I think it'll take time. And I think that the partnership that has to happen with the distributive environment plus the fintech environment has to go up really rapidly, right? Because the, 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 the consumers still do like having a presence there. In our most recent survey with Harris, 60% of consumers said they were comfortable walking into a branch now. Only 40% said they're not. That number will go back up. doesn't mean they want to, though. I mean, it said, are they comfortable doing it? They, If they can get it some other way, there's lots of reasons to do it. And I think that we will all have to invest in those areas. And I think that it's wise for the banks to move quickly. We see on our side... Banks buying our online account opening more rapidly. We see on our site people wanting. Uh, we launched a sort of insure tech platform uh, a few weeks ago called Casasa Care, and we see people wanting to generate non-interest income from that as well. So very, very interesting how the banks are responding and how quickly. And it's interesting. We're, we're definitely going to see the question of what's the competitive advantage of your branch footprint, and then what's the competitive advantage of the humans in those branches, and and how do you retool them and how do you retrain them to to be able to take to play to their strengths around problem solving, around empathy, around that that humanity. For too long, the branch was uh, what happens when the digital process doesn't work well enough, uh, revert to the branch. And actually inverting that, what's the competitive advantage of the branch in a human is a great set of questions to kind of start start with uh, and play with. Listen, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much for joining me, everybody. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your company, starting with Stephen? Find out more about me on LinkedIn um, if you want to connect with me in regard to potential opportunities to partner. Um, if you want to find out more about how we're supporting customers, visit santander.co.uk. Fantastic. Stuart? Yeah, the same LinkedIn, Stuart Sop. Um, we're hiring and growing it rapidly. Um, and then if you want to find out more about current, current.com. Fantastic. And Keith? Uh, Keith Brannan on LinkedIn, at KB Seeker on Twitter. And then if you want to find out more about us, you can go to Casasa or just walk into a local community bank or credit union and ask them why they don't offer it. Mm-hmm. I like the sound of that. Uh, Kate, how about you? Yeah, Kate Moody on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm k8.moody. Fantastic. You can find me on Twitter at SY Taylor or just find me Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. 
Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please do remember to subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a review. And please, please pass on the pod. Tell people about what this podcast is all about. Uh, Anybody who loves fintech, let them know all about Fintech Insider. We also love any recommendations for guests. Uh, Let us know who you want to hear from and the subjects you want to hear about. Get in touch. Email podcasts at 11fs.com. That's all for now. Goodbye, and we'll speak to you soon.